this series called Wineskins, and today I will conclude it, is because of the years I spent in bondage to legalism and the hell of growing up as a young Christian embroiled in the dead works of religious teaching. When asked about their feelings towards Christians and going to church, the unchurched in recent surveys say that they feel the church and its message is irrelevant, it's boring, and it's judgmental, even hateful. It's because of all of those things that I began to dig into Scripture regarding issues like grace, forgiveness, repentance, renewal, and redemption. I apologize for being late and not being in worship service with you this morning, but frankly, it's like drinking from a fire hose. I look forward to the next two weeks of sabbatical. Nothing's wrong. In fact, everything's right. But I'm going to see if I can get that fire hose pared down to maybe something a little more reasonable, like a soaker or something. I just, okay. And uh, Rod will be in the pulpit, and uh, boy, you need to be here. Three different men came to me this week, one immediately following last week's service, looked at me and just broke up into tears and said, you don't know how this message in this series has changed my life. Another one met me for lunch and said, I can't tell you the difference. This and the series before it, called Imitator, is making in my life. Another one said, ever since Rod's, Pastor Rod's series on compassion, these three, compassion, imitator, and now wineskins, my life has never been the same. These are men. I love you women. I appreciate God bringing you. But boy, there's something special when a man steps up and says, I'm being changed. I'm being transformed. All of this has brought me a new sense of joy, a new sense of God's presence, victory and temptation, a new appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross, an exciting awareness of his presence, and a renewed desire to share all of this with others. Now, Paul stated in the book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of of God unto salvation for everyone. Not just those who have signed up, everyone who believes. Unfortunately, it hasn't been the good news of the gospel, it's been the threat of the gospel. Turn or burn, and I'm going to need you, Sam, on the computer. We were driving down the highway just this week, and <laughs> I caught this bumper sticker, and I slowed, and I handed my phone to Nina, and I said, take a picture of this. It just it fits my series. So I want you to see this bumper sticker. So for you uh, listening, 
uh, by digital means, the bumper sticker says, and Jesus said, repent or else. <laughs> That's, yeah, my wife and I commented to each other in the car, isn't that life-giving? That whole mindset of the Western Christian church is because we've had the backstory wrong. And I wonder if my chairs are available. Ed, thanks. Don't rush, we'll wait. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Look, if I didn't give the helps ministry a little bit of hard time around here every once in a while, you'd, you'd forget what it was to be maligned and <laughs> accused and feel bad. <laughs> Good news, that's right. Are we going to have problems with this? <laughs> this was classic. I'm asking my technical people, are we going to have problems with this? He's standing back there and he goes... <laughs> Here's the backstory as we've learned it in Western Christianity. There was God. God is creator and he created everything. He created Adam and Eve. They blew it. And they fell. The creator had said, don't eat. They ate, they blew it. So then there was anger and separation. So God turns his back. And Adam and Eve are left to sort of fend for themselves, and they start the human race. So that they can not kill themselves and there can be a race, there's a system of laws and rules that's instituted. Now we have our Old Testament. You with me so far? This is our backstory. This is our backstory for Christianity and all of the Bible. We continue with our story, and now Jesus comes to God and says to God, God, I have an idea. I will go to the earth and I'll, um, I'll do what's necessary to appease your wrath. What do you think? God says, okay, let's do it. So Jesus comes to earth. He dies on the cross. He comes to forgive people's sins. He starts a new religion. And he rolls out a whole new system of behavioral rules. And these behavioral rules are even more demanding. These behavioral rules say things like, not only is it wrong to murder, but I say to you that if you even hate your brother, if you have really intense adversarial strong feelings towards your brother, then that equals hate and you've already committed murder. 
this new system of rules is so intense that where in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, you were stoned, but in the New Testament, it's elevated, and Jesus says, if you even look at a woman to lust, you've committed adultery. So, we go from a system of rules and laws in the Old Testament, where God is mad and he's separated and humankind is just eking along and full of religion and distant, God's a distant being and we're constantly trying to appease him through ceremonies of animal sacrifice to a good idea, Jesus says, uh, I'll go to the earth and I'll die for them. I'll start a new religion. We'll forgive their sins, but we're going to hold them to an even higher standard. How many, are you, uh, how many of you are with me? Okay. And this higher standard is one of ob obey Jesus, live a good life so that you can go to heaven. So here's Jesus. He's down here on earth. He dies and he's raised again and he forgives people's sins and God turns back around and he's appeased. His, his anger has been put on Jesus. Jesus died in our place. God's appeased. Jesus goes back up to heaven, sits down at the right hand of God, and the two of them say, hey, so that we can continue this system of rules and behavior change and help people with their behavior so that they don't miss heaven at the end of life, we're going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to help people obey God. So now we have God the Father, God the Son, who are in agreement on sending the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is here to help all good Christians behave properly and make it to the end of life without messing things up so that we can go into eternity. Sound familiar? Sound like the backstory you grew up with? Now, is there anything from that backstory that can possibly develop other than a new Torah? A new law code and a new system of I've got to obey or else. And hence the bumper sticker on the car, repent or else. It makes total sense. It's our backstory. Here's the kicker. Jesus, back at the right hand of the Father now, is, quote, interceding for us. All good Christians know that. Romans chapter 8, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Now, here's what I read in one commentary this week. I mean, I know this stuff is out there, but when I actually read it, Dave, it just shocks me, the sheer ignorance of it and the lifting things out of Scripture that just don't exist. The reason Jesus is back at the right hand of the Father interceding is because he wants to be sure, number one, that we get to the end so that we can go to heaven, and number two, he is negotiating daily forgiveness on our behalf. I'm quoting, I kid you not, daily he is renegotiating forgiveness on our behalf so that we can make it to the end and go to heaven. This is our backstory, dear ones. 
Let's contrast with that the backstory of Scripture. Ready? We're going to change it up a bit. We have God the Father. We have God the Son. And we have God the Holy Spirit. And these three are in perfect harmony, perfect unity. They're in each other's presence every day. They have beautiful, loving communion, oneness, agreement. There's nothing lacking. Because some Christians believe that because God was lonely, he created you. Dear Jesus. <laughs> he was not lonely. And he sure could have done a better job than creating me and you to satisfy that. Out of the heart of God, from eternity past, something we can't even understand, it's, it's simply, in the best words that the writers of the New Testament could put it, expressed like this, before the foundations of the world, you and me existed. You and I existed in the heart of God, the heart and mind of God. And so, in perfect unity, as best we understand from the book of Genesis, this triune love affair, they decide, let's create a human being and give him rule over everything. We'll call it earth, and we'll establish a, a, a kingdom where these individuals can glorify God, and we can pour our love into them, and bring them, by the way, into this, not, not bring them as in there somewhere else, but but fellowship with them in this perfect unity. So God says, Holy Spirit, go out and begin to brood over the face of the deep. You say, what was the face of the deep? How come there was a face of the deep? Well, because Scripture, though not completely clear on this, does give us a glimpse into the fact that there were fallen angels and the guy who headed this up was called Lucifer. And Lucifer rebelled against God and led a rebellion of a third of all the angels with him. In that rebellion, there was a cataclysmic destruction that occurred in the universe, laying the planet Earth waste. So what you have in Genesis chapter 1 is not the creation. Originally, you have a recreation. Oh, there's not time for me to go there, but that'll be another study. Say, oh my God, now, now I know he's gone off the deep end. No, 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 no. Just, just consider this one passage. What did God tell Adam and Eve after he created them? Go and do what? Replenish. How do you replenish something that wasn't ever first plenished? We just need to read our Bibles. Okay, so the Holy Spirit goes out and he's brooding, the scripture says, over this 
dark, deep. Jeremiah says it was without form and empty. Catastrophe. God didn't create it that way. It became that way in the rebellion. So the Holy Spirit goes out and starts brooding over it. And out of that activity, God creates the heaven and the earth, and he creates humankind. Adam and Eve are given a free will, and they fall. God, prior to even creating the earth and Adam and Eve, already had in his heart and mind the exact idea, the exact solution, the exact address and answer to what would happen with Adam and Eve. And so when they fall, he's already put that plan into operation. According to Paul in the New Testament, there's one reason for the law. All those 630 plus laws and rules and regulations that the children of Israel had to live by. It wasn't for the world. It was for them. And Paul says it was like a tutor, a schoolmaster, to bring us to the time where the Christ could be born, period. The author of Hebrews says, not one of those could ever satisfy or atone for sin and none of those legal systems and sacrifices could ever recreate the human heart and give life to it and redeem what had fallen back into this loving relationship with God. So, God sends Jesus. This wasn't a stopgap measure. Jesus wasn't appeasing God's anger. God wasn't mad. He knew Adam and Eve were going to fall. And when they did, then he put the plan into operation, and Jesus came, and Jesus died. And according to John's Gospel, chapter 17, I encourage you to read it this past week. I trust that you did. And if you haven't, please, you must. John's Gospel, chapter 17, tells us how Jesus redeemed us back into this perfect, loving relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through what he did. That is our backstory. God's not mad. God's not desperate. God doesn't want you to live by a system of rules and regulations. He wants us to enjoy perfect unity with him in this love triangle called Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We are part of that trinity. That's our backstory. And so in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So the issue with people today when it comes to Christianity and the good news is that Christianity has simply become another religion, a moral system, a philosophy, most of all about giving advice and changing behavior. It's not about this love triangle. It's not about how that through the work of Christ we've been redeemed back into that perfect innocence of a relationship with God. Not based on rules and regulations, but on love. 
the announcement of good news isn't that Jesus came to forgive sins. It's that Christ was offered to redeem us back to God. And not only us, but an entire fallen world and nature. All of nature, all of the world, and all of its occupants were redeemed back into this loving, triune love affair of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, once people grasp that the events of the Messiah's death and resurrection have transformed everything, and that they are now living between that initial explosive event and God's final setting right the world, then everything will change. Belief, behavior, attitudes, expectations, and not the least, a new love, a real sense of belonging, which springs up amongst all those that share this wonderful gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, how do we deal in light of this backstory? How do we deal with subjects like repentance, sin, forgiveness, sanctification? Does sin separate you from God? Keep our backstory in mind. Does God require repentance in order to become a Christian? Let's deal with that. Last week we dealt and answered and addressed the issue of confession. Why we confess our sins. What it is and what it isn't. This week, in the few moments that I have left to me, I want to deal with repentance. You ready? You're going to have to listen quick. Now, let's begin here. Do you remember the woman who was brought to Jesus, who was caught in adultery? Sure, one of the most famous Bible stories. Jesus knelt down in the sand, in the dirt, and he wrote something. We don't know what he wrote. It doesn't tell us. But upon seeing it, while they were watching Jesus, all the religious leaders, Pharisees, and hypocrites who had brought this woman to Jesus to see what they would do, because you've got to remember, in that day, the law, the religious teaching, the law required them to stone her to death. So he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. And they're all watching. He looks up and he says, let him who is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all turned and walked away. Now the authorized version, meaning the King James translation, says, and Jesus said to her, woman, where are your accusers? She said, there aren't any, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I accuse you. And the authorized version says, go and sin no more. If you're reading from the King James, you'll see it. That was added. Go and sin no more is not there in the original translations, original renderings of the Greek. So the conversation went like this. Woman, where are your accusers? They all left. God, 
Jesus, right? God was Jesus. Jesus was God. God says to her, neither do I condemn you. End of conversation. Period. He was already starting. He was already implementing, even back under the law, even back under the Jewish and Hebrew teaching of law code, even before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he was already bringing to bear what it would look like after Christ died, after Christ was raised from the dead. Neither do I condemn you. And how could God say that to her? Because in the mind and heart of God, the whole backstory is God's not mad. He didn't turn his back on you. As soon as Adam and Eve fell, he climbed right into the midst of everything that was going on. And I submit to you that when you fail and you sin, you stumble and you do something ignorant, God climbs right into the middle of that with you to walk you through it, to remind you how much he loves you. And so, go, neither do I condemn you, was simply an expression of this plan that God had all along. This perfect unity of bringing them in and back into, redeeming them back into this beautiful fellowship, eye to eye, where there is now. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He was just walking that out with the woman caught in adultery before Jesus even died. By the way, by the way, if repentance is absolutely crucial, if repenting, coming to church, and, and showing up for a few months at least consistently, and raising your hand to serve, and being a good Christian, and I mean, you know, you need a couple of years under your belt, you know, as a good Christian, before we can actually really certify, this thing took, you're going to heaven, you're, you're good, all right? <laughs> if that were necessary, how is it that Jesus, during his ministry, during his ministry, before his death, burial, and resurrection, forgave sins. On what basis did Jesus forgive sins if it wasn't on the basis of this perfect love, fellowship, and triangle going on here with the Trinity where they had already, for, for all of the ages, before the foundation of the world, said, we've got a plan. We're going to implement it. And we're going to do it without you or your opinion. We're going to put it into place, and it's going to perfectly redeem humankind, in fact, all of creation, back to ourselves. What do you think of that, Jesus? <laughs> Good idea. How about that, Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit says, yes, let's go. Come on. And they do it. Don't you love God? Isn't that like the coolest thing, that he would just remove it out of your care and just do it based on his love for us? Wow. G 
Jesus came to establish a new law for sure. It's called the law of liberty, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. That's what Paul called it. There's the law of sin and death, and there's the law of the spirit of life in Christ. There's only those two laws. Anything that's not the law of the spirit of life is outside of that. It's a dead work, and it's fallen to the wayside. Now get this. I don't know if this is in your handout or not. If it is, complete the sentence, but please hear this. Hear this. God was saying to us, I want the goodness. Jesus was saying to that woman caught in adultery, I want the goodness of God's love to lead you to repentance and to my arms, not the fear of judgment and eternal damnation. And that's why he never uttered the words, go and sin no more. It wasn't necessary. She wouldn't. She didn't want to go and keep sinning because she had encountered the love of the Creator. And she got a taste of what it was going to be like after Jesus hung on that cross and rose from the dead to be perfectly redeemed back to her perfect innocence just like it was in the beginning in the garden before Adam and Eve fell. It is good. It's called good news. It's called the gospel. All right, so repent. We need a radical shift of mind here when it comes to the subject and the word. Repent. The Hebrew word and the Hebrew connotation of repent is indeed sackcloth, ashes, <laughs> sorrow, change your direction, and behave differently. But that is not the New Testament revelation of repent. And it's not what Jesus required. You say, I, I, I'm not exactly sure where, but I know Jesus preached repentance. You're right, he did. Let me give you three key passages. They're in your handout. Luke 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. By the way, he wasn't saying that there were some who didn't need to repent, just that there were some who didn't think they did. <laughs> oh, you didn't get that. When he said, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repent, he wasn't saying. He didn't mean that there were some who didn't need to, only that there were some who were so full of themselves and so full of law code and self-righteousness that they didn't think they needed to. Here's a second verse. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! Watch this. Repent, and he follows it with this. This is critical. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. During the baptism of Jesus by John... All right? not, not while Jesus was standing in the water, but in that, that season, with, within days of Jesus himself being baptized by John the Baptist. John was at the waters of the Jordan baptizing people. People were coming that had had no change of heart, no intention of repenting and receiving the kingdom. And so John the Baptist said this, look, Luke 3 verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Are you getting that? Bear fruits in keeping with. In other words, the fruits aren't the same as the repentance. The one comes before the other. It's because you repent, there's fruits. 
you don't have the fruit to repent. You don't go do something that qualifies you as repentant. You repent and then fruits begin to show. That's a great deal of difference in our gospel. The Greek word for repent is metaneo. It has two parts, meta and neo. The second part, neo, refers to the center of your thoughts, the, the, the center of your mind, right? What's, what's core to your belief. The first part, meta, is a prefix that regularly means to move or to change in order to bring to rest. So, literally then, God was saying, when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was saying, move to the center of your thinking, God's rule, God's story, God's redemption, and begin to live out of that life instead of the law code and the law of Moses that you've been burdened under for all these years. Dear ones, don't you understand? that that's why the Jews wanted to throw him over the cliff. That's why they wanted to kill him. He was coming with such a radical new mindset and such a radical new message that it went against everything precious to the Jewish heart and mind about their teaching and their laws. Jesus was in effect saying, you don't need these laws anymore. They're not going to get you to God. They're not going to satisfy or appease him. And they can't change your character. So... Repent, not change your behavior and go a different way. Accept, open your eyes, pull back the curtains and make central to your thinking that God has a new story, that he's alive, that he's well, he's not mad at you, he loves you. And he sent me to pay the penalty. And I, through what I do on the cross, and my resurrection. I'm going to perfectly redeem your innocence back to where you have perfect fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put you right in the middle of it. That was radical. Can you see after generations after decades, after millenniums of teaching some 630 laws that were precious to you, can you see that, that when this wasn't just religious law, this was state law. That, that you, this was how the country ran. That, this is how the state was run. That this was legal, these laws. Do you see what Jesus was doing? He was turning the whole thing upside down and saying, you're not going to live by law code anymore. God accepts you back, not based on anything you've ever done. He accepts you back because of what I'm going to do for you on the cross. Behavior modification and judgment were not in view, and they have nothing to do with the fundamental idea of repent. Post the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Many Bible students know it well. That passage is the cardinal, the foundational passage that every minister and every Bible student uses to teach the six 
foundational doctrines of Christianity. It's in the first three verses of chapter 6. Verse 1 includes the first two. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Every preacher has taught that passage. Multiple times. Every Bible school has it in their curriculum. And yet, almost every curriculum and every sermon I've ever heard and the church where I grew up, the teaching, all the teaching, anytime it had to do with repentance, was based on the wrong backstory. And it was based on a Jewish and Hebrew idea and mindset of changing your behavior. And not on Mataneo. So I went to two very reliable sources of the Greek to look at this word repent used in verse 1 of, of Hebrews chapter 6. First, Vincent's Greek word study. And I quote, This is not sinful works in the ordinary sense of the term, but works without the element of life which comes through faith in the living God. There's a sharp opposition, therefore, between dead works and faith. They're contraries. He's not talking about sins, repentance from sins, not doing bad things anymore, which is always how this is taught. He's talking, once again, about metaneo. He's talking about how that anything that's not life-giving is a dead work and we are to refocus at the center of our minds how that our life now is centered in this trinity and in fellowship and in perfect innocence not in being preoccupied with certain behaviors that we have to stop and start doing now expositors greek testament says this, and I quote, the word dead works here means vain and fruitless. It continues, dead works are such as have no living connection with the character of God, but are done in mere compliance with the law, and therefore they accomplish nothing. Don't live there anymore. Repent. Don't it's not change your behavior, it's pull back. Pull back the curtains of your mind. Refocus, put at the center of all of your thinking what Jesus did for you and me. Live there. Live out of that. From that, draw your strength, your joy, your peace, your love. Because it's by what Jesus did for me not my self-effort. Dear ones, listen. This is a radical mind shift regarding repentance. Now hear me. G get the tape, download this, listen to it later, write it in your notes there. Repentance doesn't change God's mind towards you. It changes your mind towards God and His redemptive grace in Jesus. Repentance doesn't cause God to accept and forgive you. It causes you to see your redeemed innocence and how God has already received you through what Jesus did. And by the way, 
that view that Jesus is in heaven praying for you to make it and negotiating your forgiveness daily. Do you remember that one? Dave, I'd laugh too. And I don't know what to do with myself. I read that and about fell out. I have some good news for you because I looked that verse up too. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. You've heard that sin means to miss the mark. Surely you've heard that definition, right, of sin. I have good news for you. Intercession, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Intercession means to, quote, hit the mark. Oh, so you can rest in the fact that Jesus is ever living to make intercession for you. You are presently and immediately in the presence of the Father because of what Jesus has already accomplished. He never misses the mark on our behalf. Now that's substitution. That's propitiation. That's not just covering sin. That's removing sin and eradicating it. Say, Pastor Jeff, aren't you doing what they did in the early days of the church where they accused Paul of just preaching a sloppy agape? Don't you think, Pastor Jeff, that our behavior is important? Don't you know that if you give a license to, to sin, people will run with that, rampant in your church? They accused Paul of the same thing. Paul brought it up in Romans. He said, what are you accusing me of? Preaching that sin might increase so that grace would abound? He said, far be it. Absolutely not. That is not the gospel. Now, here's what Paul said about sin. If we continue in it as a believer, after understanding this redemption of our innocence, Number one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul preached that. Now, there's a beautiful note in the Mirror Bible of that verse. Verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, and I quote, The resolve of God declares you innocent. This announcement frees you from fornication. The resolve of God is declared in His accomplished redemption of the life of our design in Christ. Fornication is a form of idolatry, which is to be engaged with a distorted, which means to be engaged with a distorted image of yourself. It is to be obsessed with something that you feel you must have in order to complete you, just like Eve was attracted to eat the fruit of the I am not tree. End quote. Dear ones, that's so powerful. It is God's will that we be sanctified, but you will never be able to walk in the power of sanctification if you are daily conscious of your failures and continually reminding yourself of taste not, touch not, handle not, do not, I shouldn't, I can't. That's not life-giving. That, indeed, is what we're to repent of and put away and refocus at the center of our minds what Jesus accomplished for us. And when we do, you know what you do? You tear down the idol called fornication. Fornication isn't just a sexual sin. 
Fornication is when you erect any thought into the center of your mind that takes the place of God's redemptive innocence that he purchased through Jesus Christ. How dare we focus our attention on behavior and good works and things we have to do to please God. It becomes fornication. God says, don't live there. I want your sanctification. And your sanctification comes through realizing who you are in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul made it very clear. Whatsoever a man soweth, help me, that he shall. All right. Well, if you want to live, if you want to live out there where you're sowing to your flesh, well, then you're going to of your flesh reap corruption. It's not God's best. It's not God's will. He's forgiven you already of that. But that's a law in the universe. Number three, sowing to the flesh will of the re flesh reap corruption. So I, I overlap two and three. Number four, Paul said, I buffet my body daily. How many of you have ever heard that scripture? I take control. I buffet my body daily. You know what he was saying? As a personal best, I refuse to do certain things. I take control of my body as a matter of personal best, not a matter of pleasing God. I'm already pleasing to God. He's already accepted me back into this loving trinity. Man, I don't know what you're going to preach over the next two weeks. You, you told me something to do with community. But I've sure given you a good foundation. <laughs> Woo, glory! Community starts right here. This is where community begins. And I'm in this. Now I can choose to sow to my flesh, and I'm going to of the flesh reap corruption. I can choose to have idols of behavior that I still bow down to, and it's constantly going to pull at me in this relationship of community. But Paul said, I make it my personal best. Not because I'm trying to please God, but because I just... I just believe in looking fit and feeling fit and being able to run and play racquetball. I don't want to be some sloppy mess laying on the couch watching television all day. Bless God, I want to in the spirit, I want to, I want to be able to do something for God. When he says go and preach the gospel, I want to be able to go. I want to board a ship. I want to, I want to travel thousands of miles and raise up churches and ordain preachers. That's why I keep myself fit. That's why I buffet my body. Not to be pleasing to God, but because His call is on my life. And I want to do everything He's called me to do. So I buffet my body. Okay. Last week I preached the longest sermon since I started this church. I couldn't believe it went that long. This one will not go that long. We're ready to wrap it up. But listen. You always begin your journey of sanctification from the place of who you already are in Christ. Reconciled, forgiven, free, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Never begin from the place of I need, I want, I'm incomplete. I have to get something I don't have. That's the garden. That's the temptation of the tree. Eve 
God knows if you eat of this, you'll be like him. She was already perfectly like him. But the devil got her to believe that she was missing something. And he does the same thing through legalistic religious teaching today. He gets you and I to believe we're missing something. And so now we need to help God out. My sin does not shape me or determine my destiny. Being made in the image of God, reconciled through Jesus, does. And if you get nothing else from this message, I want you to be sure you fill in the blank on this final statement. Because it is the heart of this whole series. Your innocence in Christ will never be validated by your conduct in the flesh. The conclusion of God's work in Christ, or in other words, His faith in you, not your faith in Him, His faith in you, precludes any personal contribution of righteousness. Mm.